Hello, everybody, and welcome to the, a new episode of the Angry Sun Zone podcast. Where uh, all your dreams will not come true. <laughs> uh, I'm Santo. I'm Sean. And I'm Alex. Yeah, and today we're going to be talking about a variety of different things. This is a normal episode coming after our favorite games miniseries. If you haven't checked those episodes out, I strongly suggest you do so. Uh, but at the start here, I got some business that I, I got to take care of first. Housekeeping. Yeah. So in, in, in last week's episode, when I was talking about Final Fantasy Tactics being my favorite game, spoilers for the previous episode... Uh, for all I, you crazies who watch in reverse order yeah, sometimes you subscribe to a thing and play the most recent episode it could happen to you that's <laughs> yeah, true uh, but yeah I forgot to talk about my favorite mechanic in Final Fantasy Tactics my favorite game and that's um, it's something that a lot of uh, strategy RPGs have a problem with in my mind is ranged versus melee where sometimes it can be really difficult to balance that now Final Fantasy Tactics does in, this in a really interesting way where all of the magic in the game has a charge time so when you're charging you take a bunch of extra time and you also take way more damage and you, it's attacks going towards you are way more accurate. So, in this way, it's not like, for example, a game like Tactics Ogre, you can just fire off spells and your MP regenerates every turn, just like instantly. It's a huge pain in the ass to catch up with a melee unit to actually kill a ranged unit. But in Final Fantasy Tactics, that's lessened by this system that makes the combat just much better, in my opinion. So, yeah, just just need to get that out there. I've been kicking myself for two weeks about that one. Right on. Yeah, interesting design choice there. Making every every ranged unit a charge, char, or every ranged attack a charge attack. Not not necessarily like archers can fire instantly, um, or archers are the one like physical version of the charge skill that they have. But pretty much all magic, which you know, the magic in that game is pretty damn powerful, and like. It gets to the point where some of the, like, really crazy summons, it has such a long charge time that it'll come to your turn again before you're actually able to cast a spell. Yeah. I like that, though. That's kind of cool, because not only does it add some interesting uh, tactical choices, but also it kind of fits the flavor for for casting a big spell. Like, yeah. You know, you got to put down your books, put down your runes, make a fancy circle. Like, you can't do that on the move. Yeah, like... Like, yeah, I'm, yeah, curi- yeah. I'm curious, like, there's been so many, like, character RPGs on, like, the PC and whatever that have been based on stuff like Dungeons & Dragons, but I wonder how many of them have, like, that kind of, like, concentration uh, mechanic that some editions of D&D use, to where sometimes spells do have a, like, casting time, or or maybe not that, but, but there there are some situations where if you're in, like... If you're prone or whatever, you need to concentrate to you pass a concentration check to cast your spell. Listen, all I know is that Venusaur needs to needs to skip a turn to charge his solar beam. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> See? See proper JRPGs. Um 
does that mean that the concept okay so what makes what makes ranged versus melee uh dynamics balanced versus unbalanced like what what would you say is the key elements there i mean the key element is that range doesn't just totally dominate yeah you, there can, are... you can't have you can't have 100 percent hit and run yeah. because then one unit can always damage the other where the other unit can't i mean in 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 some cases, like, you can have games where, like, the ranged units are just so good and without weakness that melee isn't even really a viable strategy. Right. Yeah. So, like, for example, in a game like Advanced Wars, uh, the range on a lot of the indirect units are not such that you can't move, pa- move past it with, like, a tank. Like, rockets have five range, but tanks have six movement, and they have one range, or whatever. So, you're always able to close the gap. Yeah. Makes sense. Advanced Wars is a, is a excellent strategy game, as we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah, it is. And yeah, And al- although I will say, actually, there, there were some additions where uh, the artillery unit, specifically... Uh, was actually extremely powerful and you could basically mass it and that was that could be actually your entire strategy and it wasn't it was it wasn't necessary it wasn't always too bad of a strategy on some maps yeah because they were uh, cheap enough yeah. yeah yeah but you know we could talk about advanced wars for another like half an hour but <laughs> instead why don't we talk about a spirit the spiritual successor to advanced wars war you groove. mean war groove war groove war groove <laughs> What's Wargroove? As, as promised uh, last episode, well, as speculated last episode, I suppose, we were going to talk about Wargroove today. Um, we actually did end up playing it instead of just saying we were going to play it. Yeah. At least I, me and Alex did. I know. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, actually playing games these days. Yeah. Like, we bought this game and then we played it relatively soon after buying it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was in a Humble Bundle, too. I never played those. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, Wargroove, um, this is, this is as spiritual a successor okay, as you so can be. Okay, so, I'm gonna, it's, it's, I'm gonna be honest, they, they, they ripped it off. They really ripped it off. I, I mean, one of the things I've noticed is that just playing the game, I'm, I'm basically pattern matching what I already know about Advance Wars and being like, oh, the Spearman? Oh, that's just the mech. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the 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 fell beast which is like a flying bat dragon that's a bomber <laughs> you know like like they cribbed they cribbed almost all of like the unit kind of uh types you could say um, a, a fair amount of, yeah a fair amount of, although all there was their own there are a couple that are interesting like they have a dog unit which is uh, actually uh very interesting and uh different that's than, just the recon <laughs> I thought it was a bit different than the recon. I mean, it it is. There, there's different. There's a, a lot of spins on it. I, I'd say the dog is is a. I'd say the dog fits in a different niche. Personally. I mean, in fog of war maps, it fits in the same niche as being a fairly mobile unit with good sight. Um. So. Yeah. It's it's just that it's not like armored like a recon is, where it can still like get attacked by any kind of infantry unit and get smoked. So here's my question. Earlier I had asked you guys, before you actually had started playing the game, whether you think I might like it. 
now that you guys have played it, do you think that I would totally be into it, considering you, uh, that I also enjoyed Advance Wars and... When was the last time you've played you played Advance Wars? Would you say? I would probably say that would that's got to be at least ten years ago, eh? Yeah, you should play it. You should play Warroof. Solid. All right. I think the the farther out you are from Advance Wars, I think the more you you you'd appreciate it. Mm, because it, because if you if you play this game like so shortly after playing Advance Wars, I, I have a feeling that if I did that, I might you know be comparing it. It even more than I am. Yeah, and honestly, although although we've been talking about how they've cribbed a lot of the unit types and uh, animation styles, um, terrain terrain styles, uh, uh, <laughs> air air sea combat land. animations, air, air, air sea land uh, is combat battles. triangles. <laughs> uh, there are actually some extremely there are some extremely critical differences in the gameplay itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of them, what I'm gonna say is actually the most significant to me is that you uh, the way that cities work. Um, mm-hmm. You don't actually get to occupy cities, and I think that that changes the game a lot. Um, yeah, specifically, you capture cities, but a city is not a tile that you can place a unit in. Yeah, and in the in the Advanced Wars games, having a unit on a city tile was huge because cities gave a sizable defensive bonus and your unit would heal or get repaired uh, a little bit every turn. So Advanced Wars definitely had a, a bit more of a defensive-oriented playstyle all the time. Yeah. Whereas Wargroove, uh, a lot of the changes they've made have made it more aggressive. Yeah, almost every change, I would say, uh, makes it a more aggressive game. Uh, and honestly, I like it. It's actually, I, I've been I've been finding it to be in some ways more dynamic, uh, because I would say that a lot of the time there's less of an obvious dominant unit to build in a in a general situation. I find myself considering what to try and use to break up enemy positions a lot more based on like what's actually on the field instead of just like oh this unit has the best uh you know power to price like efficiency therefore i'm going to use this unit every time like yeah i th- i think one of the big um reasons for that is because a lot of maps on war in wargroove have very few actual production buildings under your control whereas in advanced wars like a lot of maps you start with three or four barracks to mm-hmm. make units from so you can't you know mass a unit and also make something to counter the counter unit to the unit you're massing. In Wargroove, you have to be a lot more selective with what, with what units you make. So if you try to mass, you know, a bunch of pikemen, your opponent can just say, okay, I'm going to, you know, start making some air units or make more ranged units because pikemen have such a low movement to counter you. Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much just that. Yeah, so the other, uh, one of the other big uh, differences I'll say is that every unit has a, a critical strike. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not, they're more like uh, special bonuses rather than a crit. It's not random. So different units get additional bonus damage from different kind of uh, conditions on the field. So the basic soldier unit, for example, uh, crits when it is beside your hero unit which we haven't talked about, but we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Um, your, uh, the pikemen crit when they're beside each other. Uh, the dogs crit when they're surrounding an enemy. 
um, and so on and so on. And there's every single unit has a different one. And a lot of them are actually really critical to keep in mind because... Uh, yeah, really critical. You, I like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you use them right, uh, they're, the, they're the difference between an encounter going your favor and your, an encounter not going your favor. And they're typically all based on some very, very fine-grained uh, you know, position, positioning relative to the enemy and your other units. Mm-hmm. And I found that that was actually... I, I, I've, I've been finding that that's interesting... It, it, it especially like it, it makes combat around choke points in particular uh, really tough to figure out how exactly you want to position everything. Right. There's a lot more repos- there's a lot more repositioning to try and take advantage of the bonus damage uh, than I would say you get in Advance Wars. Totally. Where it, as in Advance Wars, all you care about is the defense bonus for the train you're on, and you know a lot of different. Uh, like grid-based RPGs, a lot of them, you know, have terrain bonuses, but not necessarily positional bonuses. Fire Emblem has actually been going in that direction uh, a lot more, where positioning your units beside other units will grant bonuses. And I, I'm actually not the biggest fan of this. Um, I, I just don't think I've encountered a game that does it like well enough that I enjoy playing a tactical RPG like that. I think Wargroove is the closest that has gotten. I think some of the crit stuff is is good. Um, but I think that some of them just, like, don't necessarily... I feel like a lot of them don't naturally come up. Speci- specifically the dog one. I I almost never have, have a situation where I'm surrounding an enemy with multiple dogs where that matters. Because either, like, the first... Either I'm attacking the same unit and one hits, and then the other hits and is probably going to finish the job for any unit that I'm going to use the dogs against. Or I'm specifically, like, trying to maneuver my units and a lot... I don't know. A lot... Sometimes it just feels like a wasted turn if I'm not attacking with a unit. And I'm just putting it in position for other units to be good. I don't know. So it's... Maybe because I play more, I'll, I'll like it a bit more, but... We'll see. We'll see. Um, but yeah, I think we got we got to talk about the commander units. Yeah, we have. That's to talk that's about a commander huge, units. That's a huge difference. Huge um, difference. Yeah, and uh, for those of you who were listening in on our favorite games, now we did mention that one of my favorite my favorite Advance Wars game, Advance Wars: Days of Ruin, does have a commander unit, but it's very different in that the commander unit in Advance Wars: Days of Ruin is actually disposable. Yes. <laughs> uh, and that is not the case in Wargroove. In Wargroove, if your commander dies, you lose. Yeah, so that that definitely changes <laughs> things all, quite a bit because your commander unit has what what's called their groove. You know, the groove in Wargroove, where it's a special power that they charge up at, after fighting for a certain amount of time. They need to be, you know, they, yeah, actually it, fighting to do this. It's not it, like a turn-based thing. It, it charges a little bit based on turn, but it's very slow. Yeah, so you need to be in combat to raise this thing. But if you're in combat to get this, you know, powerful ability, you're also putting your commander at risk. Now, the command, your commander is one... Your like, commander's also like a huge tank. Yeah, and, they, they don't take much damage from uh, stuff. It doesn't take a lot of damage and, and it really, dishes out a lot. They can mess up infantry real bad. Yeah. Um, so, 
Although like, when there's higher power units, it can get risky. Uh, some of the strong range units, like the catapult, or the strong aerial units, like the sort of dragon class, uh, they can do significant damage. Yeah, and specifically with like the the dragon, like that has enough movement where if if you get caught out by one of those, you're screwed. Also, <laughs> the dragon crits when the uh, target is on a road. Uh, I had a dragon crit on my commander when my commander was on a road, and I think it did like ninety percent damage. Yeah, <laughs> and like roads already provide no defensive bonus so i've killed a infantry unit with a three hp dragon on, yeah. that was on a road it was that powerful um but yeah so the the thing about the commander unit though is that i'm not entirely i don't like the fact that they're not disposable <laughs> it because it feels like it like to me like i I, I'd say it almost feels like you're playing two games simultaneously, and you're not sure which one you actually want to, to be playing at any given time. Yeah, like, do I go after their commander, or do I go after their stronghold? Yeah, because they there's, have there's, there's, yeah, yeah. there's also a stronghold building where if you destroy that, then you win. So. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of funny, because you can... Sometimes you can win really fast, actually, by just baiting their commander out and killing your, their commander early. Sometimes you can win really fast by baiting all their units out and then just sending some strong units like quickly, like some knights, which have high movement and fairly high uh, damage, and just sending those straight to the back of their territory, um, which doesn't always work, but <laughs> or or a bomber or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, you have this sort of like decision of like, well, what are you even what are you even targeting? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, mostly so far, we've just been playing. I've just been playing the single player campaign. Oh, good. It was a moth. <laughs> oh, moths are always fucking up our business. Oh, moths hate us. Yep. Moths. Thank God we're not playing any board games right now. Dive bomb that shit. Should we interject to that story? Because that's, by the way, an amazing story. Sure. Why not? So we we're which one? Yeah, which time? <laughs> <laughs> Because the at first Santa's time, the, place. which time at my place? It's happened twice at my place. The first time we were playing Power Grid, oh, I believe. Yeah. And you know, Power Grid is a game where where you place your you know game, game pieces on the board matters a lot. And there's also a resource track that keeps track of how much which resources also cost, a lot. which matters a lot, and also you know requires pieces to be placed in a particular spot and it's a bit fiddly sometimes to place it there. It's not like a slot that you can pop it in. They're just sitting on the board. And it was summer times and my screen my screen door was not a screen door. It was just a door onto the sun deck. So we had that open naturally. It's a sun door. Yeah. And fucking moth came in, dive bombed the game like three times, scattered some pieces. It was that like fucking Strong. It was a Mothra attack. Yeah. It, like, legit, like, here's this board, here's this board of Germany, Mothra's attacking the buildings. <laughs> and eventually chased it out, but then we're just, like, looking at the board like, shit. <laughs> the game ended after that moth. I, we might have tried to continue. We tried. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, and, yeah. well, the second time could have been way worse, because the second time we were playing Eclipse. Yeah, Eclipse is a board <laughs> game with, what, a thousand pieces? 
maybe. Maybe. But, like, it, take all, all I said about Power Grid, except every every person playing has their own sheet in front of them that has, you know, Things 40 pieces on Yeah, them. their own resource tracker, their own tech tree. Their own, like, um, ships with yeah, equipment their, on them. Yeah, their own, their own ship and customization. Then, and then the heck, and then the, you know, hex grid, uh, galactic map which you yep. place hexes next to each other so it's not one big board you place the small hexes next to each other again moth just fucking everything up yeah just just like so space moth right now yeah and we we ended up catching that one in our i think it was a, a a ryan coke or a jack and coke yeah no it was a ryan <laughs> crown yeah crown and coke I think. yeah it was crown and coke and then like some book on top of the the glass <laughs> <sighs> good times always Jesus. visited by our moth overlords yeah, who, so now it's just like I don't trust moths yeah we've had a few other encounters with moths uh, but those were just the two from Santo's house <laughs> the two Santo board game moth attacks god completely amazing <laughs> oh. and, now, and now they're trying to mess up our podcast they're, they're with us always yeah. that moth was trying to bait that moth was trying to bait you into clapping Yep, <laughs> you totally was to, to, to create an edit point, but no, we got it. We're keeping it in. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So getting all get, this high quality moth content. Getting 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 back moth on track. Moth ten. <laughs> That's awful. Mothman prophecies. Getting back on track though, the uh, the thing I want to mention about the commanders is that. You know, each of them has a different special ability, but other than that, they're they're the same unit. Um, so that different special ability is basically what you choose when you choose your commander in like the skirmish mode or whatever, and that's the only difference between you know the different factions, what you have available and whatever. And so because that difference is like those abilities can make a big impact on the field, but I feel like they're fairly low impact normally because they're attached as one unit that again you have to be careful with when you're playing and so i don't know necessarily if a lot of the like skirmishes are going to be like unique enough yeah yeah like, i haven't i haven't have, been playing the skirmish mode is it gonna yet. have as much replay value yeah because that's the thing with like, some of the advanced wars, especially dual strike. There's so many COs, and, like, and you can combine them. And there's so yeah, there's so many different matchups you can have where it's like, you know. Yeah, and the different you, matchups could totally change the way a game plays. Because you know, if you got, uh, like I was talking about artillery, uh, the artillery spam strategy, which in particular worked well with one particular CO who gave one extra range so broken uh to, to yeah to range okay. units which was just made it made like a it ra it made a ranged spam strategy very strong yeah and like you know if you have a map that's primarily land and air uh do you pick you know the co that specializes with air combat or the one that specializes with vehicles or infantry or economy like so many different options that change on a macro level how you're playing the map, whereas in Wargroup these these abilities are going to have less of an impact on the overall battlefield. Yeah. So that'll, that'll be interesting as, yeah, from, as, as we play more. You know, from what I've seen 
basically what I see is that like Wargroove essentially was a game where the devs were very clearly in love with Advance Wars and they wanted another game and Intelligent Systems isn't making one. Um, and they changed it up by focusing on what I would say is just a lot of like really like fine-grained tactical changes that change the way that like you're you're really positioning your units at the at, at like like where one square over is like a tactical decision that matters uh, more so than it would in an advanced wars game but yeah perhaps definitely uh, lacking some of those more macro differences yeah so I mean I'm I'm excited about it if only because. There's no advanced wars. Yeah, it's, so, it's something new. It's but. something new, and, and like and turn-based strategy in general. I mean, I guess there's XCOM. Um, yeah, but the thing is, XCOM kind of broke everything because after you know XCOM, enemy now enemy unknown come, to copy came out. XCOM. Yeah, like every turn-based strategy game is an XCOM light, where you know there's there's cover systems and uh, it's placed a high importance on like accuracy of attacks. So it's, yeah, it's. Yeah, that was one thing actually that I've I've always liked about Advance Wars is that there really isn't a lot of there aren't a lot of other games that are like Advance Wars because Advance Wars is, in my mind, it's really closer to an RTS than um, most other quote unquote turn based strategy games, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 all about like you know unit production and like you're uh, kind of managing your economy and and stuff like that. Which uh, a lot of turn-based strategy games just aren't. Yeah, a lot of turn-based strategy games have ha- RPG elements to them, where you're where you have these individual units that you're you know progressing with over time. There's not there's not a ton that I can think of where you're just commanding generics that are the same every map. Yeah. Oh. So there's this game. This very early strategy game, I think I think we might have actually played it. And it was very simple where you had two opposing cities and you would just basically buy units um, for your city and it was the order that you bought those units in uh, that would kind of make the difference. Oh, that was a flash game, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. don't fucking remember The that name of it evades me, but I know that I'm pretty sure we've all played it, and since you remember it, yeah. 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 I've definitely played my fair share of weird Flash strategy games, but I don't remember most of them. I only vaguely remember it. And uh, it was I mean, interesting because there was nothing necessarily special about those units. They were all generic. Uh, but it was, it, almost, was, it was almost more like uh, one of those wave it was almost like a really simple wave tower defense except like competitive yeah um part of it was uh like it it almost boiled it down that there was known solutions i guess in that game where you know if someone's sending certain things against you you're going to want to counter it with with the right units and at the right time i think was the key there uh because for example you could buy a slow infantry unit and it would plot its way over to the enemy uh, and then you could buy a fast-moving bomber and have the bomber basically begin guaranteed to rain hellfire down on uh, whatever tanks are in the way of the infantry uh, so they could keep plodding on before they get killed. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
that was just a, a, a thought of the... Um, I, I think that games have evolved since then, um, and I, I agree with you that I really haven't seen very many where it's only generic units. Besides, do we, do we consider chess to be like that? <laughs> You're not producing units in chess. Yeah, chess has and, no sorry, production. Chess has progression mechanics. Your pawn can become a queen. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's got, chess has leveling up. It's true. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it, for me, I've mostly just been playing the campaign, so I I haven't played much other than that yet. Yeah. I've played a few of the puzzles. Oh yeah, I played I played a couple of those too. Yeah. Those were um, fine. Yeah, I'm on Act Seven. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty close to the end. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, do you know, remember how far you've gone? So I, I think I'm on like I'm near the end of Act Four. Okay. Have you gone to naval combat yet? No. Okay, so. That's one thing that I think Wargroove does very differently from Advanced Wars, and I really, really like how they did it, and really don't like how they did one specific part of it. Mm. So, uh, it's got naval combat, as well as the air and land combat, and the one, the big, I never really liked playing naval maps in Advanced Wars. Naval was always the odd one out in Advanced Wars. Because, the thing about... The naval fights, to me, the biggest problem was how damn expensive all the units were. It was so... It took so much to control the water, where if you tried to control the water and failed, you'd lose so many resources doing that in any map that had, you know... you Like, was a combined map where you could, you know, go around the land or use a bunch of air units. But... In Wargroove, all of the units are fairly reasonably priced. Like, your battleship equivalent is, I think it's like 950 resources. Not, oh, that's not so bad. Not, you know, in Advanced Wars it was like twenty-five or 26,000. Where, you know, the difference is a factor of 10 between how much money you get per city between the two. So, like, it's not, you know, two and a half times more expensive than the, than the Wargroove equivalent. Um, it's got, like, the same rock, paper, scissors kind of thing, where you've got, you know, your ranged, uh, power, powerful attacker that can hit crap, uh, land units and sea units. You've got your, uh, you know, kind of fast-moving, uh, in this case it's a turtle. A tur- a fast-moving turtle? <laughs> it's in the water, don't worry about it. Wow. And that, that, that can hunt down these warships, and then you've got, um... A, a unit that can shoot down shoot down the a harpoon ship, which can take down these turtles, but can also take down air units. Okay, so so keep in mind, you know, if you want like flying bats that breathe fire, uh, war dogs, some of whom are aliens, uh, skeletons, and fucking turtle lightning fast turtles. You war, got your game. Yeah, war group's the game for you. Um, so it's, it's got that, and again, the units are cheap, cheap enough where it feels like that's a viable, like, thing to spend resources on, and even if you don't necessarily win the water, you're not, you're not dead in the water, per se. Um, but they also have a really interesting unit, which is a water-based infantry unit, because there's villages on the water. Oh. 
and you know ports are also on the water and they don't necessarily have to be next to land in this game and so and that unit can also go on land but it's really crappy on land it's got like half the movement and does maybe like a third of the damage but and it's also got like two range so it's like a pretty decent unit um and that that opens it up a lot because uh also having economy on the water plus you know water being affordable to take to take makes the game feel like the three fronts that you're going to be using on these maps all feel important in a way that in advanced wars they not they never quite did even even in days of ruin yeah they I, did, never... I didn't feel like the na the naval was i thought the naval was slightly improved but it still wasn't great yeah yeah i thought that they did they they made the naval a bit better in, in days of ruin but it was always it was always just weird and the thing I always found is that mixed maps, naval was never something you really wanted to do. Naval was always like, oh, I guess I have to use naval because the map demands it. Yeah, it's just like, I can't get any of my vehicles over to the enemy island unless I, you know, take a lander across and I need that lander to be able to survive. Yeah, and then oftentimes in a map like that where, say, you have... Uh, like if you have two separate land masses or, or multiple separate land masses, what would usually happen is the land masses would be very well fortified and there would just be this like kind of stalemate-ish thing going on in mm -hmm. the naval combat for like way too long. Yeah. Well, there's everyone fixed that by enabling the battleships to be able to move and shoot. Yeah. And, and the ships in Wargroove can also move and shoot. Like, the, the, the harpoon ship is a ranged unit. Yeah, a lot of the ranged units can move and shoot. Or, well, some of it's, them. It's just the battleship in Days of Ruin. Yeah. I, I meant also in more group oh, the in archers. Group. Yeah, the archers and, and, like, all the naval units. Um, but the one problem with the naval combat is that, for whatever reason, tr the turtles and the harpoon ships can't attack docks. And now, in more group, to take, oh. to take over, like, an enemy's... Uh, uh, property or building or whatever, uh, you need to attack it down to it down to a neutral building before you can take it, and the buildings also attack counter attack, and the counter attacks from buildings do not get weaker as the building's HP goes down. So yeah, some of them are actually uh, some units are actually almost worthless at capturing. To even attacking them yes. because like the the dog is terrible at attacking buildings mm -hmm. you'll take way more damage yeah and like dish out. and like basic swordsmen aren't great at taking over buildings either you still need infantry units to capture these buildings once they're neutral but a lot of the best units for breaking these buildings are you know the trebuchet the knight the giant yeah which i think overall commanders are also very good at yeah, it yeah overall i think that that does work to make yeah. a more diversified army uh more effective which i think is why they did it right? yeah because they, they they were clearly trying to push people away from just massing large numbers of the same unit mm -hmm. thematically it makes sense too um, you know, to have the flavor of, you know, for example, trebuchets being good and giants being good, the commander coming in and storming the city. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But just random dogs being unable to take a city. Yeah. Who let the dogs out? 
Who let the dogs in? Yeah, but but getting back to that, that, that means that taking ports, especially ones that are, you know, in the water, not near land, not like next to lands that other infantry can take it, means you have to have a merfolk unit, and the merfolk unit takes a while to take down a dock. Meanwhile, the dock can be producing turtles, which can wreck the merfolks, and Turtles also can wreck uh, the warships, which are the other thing that can actually deal damage to these buildings. So, it's... I, I wish that, you know, the other naval unit... Maybe maybe not the turtle, because it's got such high movement, but I wish that at least, like, the harpoon ship could shoot on buildings, and maybe it was, like, okay at that. Because it, it, it makes the dynamic feel a bit off, and it's pretty difficult to actually take enemy docks in that way. Yeah, that sounds like a strange... That sounds like a bit of a strange design choice. Yeah. That's one thing I will say, actually, also. So, obviously, it's uh, it's an indie game, and it's a small studio. And uh, the game has a weird mix of things that seem well-polished, and, like, a few things that are so obvious that I can't understand how they fucked it up so badly. <laughs> Let's hear your take on that. Like, the right-click menu in this game... Like, you right-click, and it brings up a, a, land, uh, a terrain view. And for some reason, you have to go and click the close button. And you can't just click away out of it. And I don't understand why. It's, it's, like, it's one of those simple... It's a small thing, okay? It's a really small thing. It doesn't have any meaningful impact on the gameplay... But it's just, like, the experience. Like, if I accidentally right-click, now suddenly I'm in this weird menu that I have to, like, move all the way back to the center of the screen and then all the way back over to the where I was using my mouse. I'm like... Well, that's why I use a controller. <laughs> yeah, come on, Alex. I'm using a controller, and it's been okay. Uh, yeah, there's a couple things. Like, I wish um, it had... Uh, this is a feature in later Fire Emblem games that they include, where you can flag an enemy and it'll always show their range of attack. Yeah. Because I, like, Advanced Wars, I was just so, I played it enough that I would, I just knew how far every unit could move and how much terrain affects all the units, but it, you know, it takes a lot of time to get that comfortable with it, and so... Yeah, I kept it's, it's, looking... It's a bit more difficult in Yeah, I kept wanting, I kept wanting to do that in Wargroove. Mm-hmm. And... I was frustrated that I couldn't, especially because that's been in Fire Emblem enough for long enough that the devs should have been able to crib that too. Maybe they never played the Fire Emblem games. Maybe they were only Advance Wars. Only Advance Wars. <laughs> How much randomness is present in the game? Um, honestly, not that much. Uh, it, so the same amount that usually exists in Advance Wars, to where each attack has a small damage range. Um, like... You could be doing like between thirty-five percent and forty-five percent of the unit's HP. It's usually about a ten percent spread. Uh, it's luckily it doesn't have uh, commanders like Nell, who's just like, <laughs> I will shoot this. I will shoot this gigantic tank with infantry bullets and kill it if I roll well enough. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. yeah. So um, not so not not much randomness, which you know. Yeah. For for any type. For any type of competitive strategy game is a good thing. Yeah, it's really only... It's just enough so that you're not always... If your attack is just enough damage to kill the enemy, 
Like, it might survive or it might not. And so... But but if you're if you're if you're like overkilling if you're if you're doing a lot more damage to the enemy then it'll always die. Yeah. Uh, like the randomness, like the randomness is subtle enough that you might not even really notice it if you weren't paying attention. It yeah. It really only it really only bites you with in certain things. Like I have had it bite me once where I was like very close to being able to kill the enemy commander, but it ended up taking me an extra turn. Because of the randomness, yeah. and I got a, I got an A rank when I probably should have gotten an S rank, and and taking out buildings some sometimes can, that can really mess you up because again the buildings counter attack at full strength even at low HP. So, I've had you know attacks where I'm with you know a dog unit where I'm either take gonna kill it and take zero damage on the crackback, or I'm gonna put it to one HP and take fifty and take half my health on the crackback. So yeah. Uh, there, there, there's, there's still that, and I'm not entirely sure if that should be in the game or not. But it's, I don't know, it's fine, I suppose. Yeah, I think uh, given the lower number of production facilities in most of the maps, and just the general, uh, like the fact that the board can be like a bit more sparse because you're you're meant to focus more on having the right units instead of just massing mm -hmm. so much. Uh, I think that's probably why they did that. Or it's just they did the thing Advanced Wars did. Oh. I mean, there, there, there well, was there a was little... no counterattack, though, was there? I don't remember that. In Advanced Wars? Yes, units, you, you, when you shot at a unit, the, the oh, unit no, shot... No, 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 I meant with the buildings, though. Not with oh, the... with the buildings, sorry. Yeah, sorry, not sorry. with buildings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other interesting uh, thing with the buildings is that you use the building's HP to reinforce your units. Oh yeah, that was the, the other. Yeah, that was the other thing that makes it a lot more difficult to uh, just sort of camp out on around a city, because even if you have the gold, a city starts with half of the HP of the unit you captured it with. So if you capture with a ten HP unit, you get a five HP city. You capture with a a three HP unit, you get a one and a half. HP building. HP yeah. building, which is likely to just go right back out the window if it's under any <laughs> threat whatsoever. Can you reinforce a city with other units? No. The city just the city just regenerates at one point per turn. Yeah, so when you're taking enemy cities, you really have you can't just like rush in an, one unit and like capture a neutral city and say like okay I'm gonna have the city for a few turns I'm gonna get I'm guaranteed basically to get this income you're not they can just take it back pretty easily and it makes it so that drawn out fights in one location can't be drawn out that much because you can't just send your damage units back a little bit to, to heal and come back to the front lines as easily because the buildings only regenerate a little bit every turn. Yeah, healing is a lot more difficult than it was in Advance Wars. Unless, unless you have the um, the wizard unit. Yeah. Which, the wizards are Yeah, and yeah, a, a couple of the units have special abilities that you can spend gold for. Like the wizard unit can heal a small area. Uh, the fighter, the fighter jet equivalent in this fantasy game, uh, <laughs> the, the yeah. witch, can hex units in a small area, which does just a flat you know, 10% damage. Or one HP damage to them. Yeah, I have had that backfire though because it does 
one HP, but because the health values in this game are actually represented by a 100% scale, like a 100 point scale, it does, you know, 10 damage. I, I had a, an enemy that was at 11% HP, <laughs> so I hexed, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna kill this unit. Nope. Although a 1% health unit in this game is utterly worthless. It was their commander! I, was, I thought I was gonna kill this guy! <laughs> oh. oh, shit. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I like that it's trying to bring some, some new ideas into uh, what is effectively a very small micro-genre of turn-based <laughs> strategy. And then, uh, yeah, I'm excited to uh, do some multiplayer soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see what that's like, because a lot of the campaign maps, you start off at a pretty big disadvantage to the enemy and just kind of have to u utilize the fact that the AI is not the best Yeah, the AI. Oh, man, the AI. My favorite way to game the AI is that the AI loves to go after your commander. I'm, I'm glad you also discovered that. To, to the point where you can just... Because the commander can tank a substantial amount of damage, uh, a very viable strategy for when you were massively outnumbered is to just put your commander basically right out front to bait everything to attack the commander and then heal the commander uh, with a nearby building or a wizard. And it's honestly just feels like the most cheeseball dumb strategy sometimes. Yeah. But the AI falls for it every single time. And, like, yeah, just baiting with your commander is also, like, yeah, it's a great way to just, like, stop an enemy choke point because they will come out to you. Yeah. So, playing against other people, like, in the campaign, we've mentioned that this game feels a lot more aggressive with a lot of their design decisions. I don't know. Some of that might also just be the AI being what It also might, yeah, is. it might be an artifact I of mean, the campaign maps and the AI. To be fair, if you think about real-life tactics, if the United States placed their commander-in-chief at the front of their military front, I'm pretty sure all the enemy units would head for him. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah, but like in but multi... Would, would, it, you, would, would the enemy units suicide themselves against him, though? Like, that's the thing. In in a multiplayer game... So, so against the AI, the AI will make clearly boneheaded tactical decisions where they just, like... They just completely give up a well-fortified choke point to when they had no chance of actually killing the commander because there was a 10 HP building right beside the commander or something like this is starting to sound more and more like real real world history to me uh, yeah <laughs> uh, but I feel like some of those like obviously you could bait a real person into attacking the high value unit that will win them the game if they kill it uh and there was, there were, there were, I had, I've had some close calls where my commander almost died because I was too aggressive with debating. Uh, but overall, I think that a, an actual human opponent would not fall for a lot of the cheesy moves that I've made in the campaign. Right on, right on. We'll see. Anyway, yeah, I'm sure you'll hear about it later. Yeah, once we played some more. Once we play a little bit more. I've actually got uh, a, a segue before the main topic. Uh, I saw the main a, topic. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking for another two hours. So there was this uh, one game that I saw a review for by uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Clay Entertainment. Yep. And uh, it's called The Last Spell, and it is a uh, roguelite style game 
in which uh, you uh, have wizards and rogues and warriors, and you're defending a city against endless waves of zombies in a turn-based scenario. And uh, this, uh, uh, so generally during the night, these zombies will attack you, and then during the day, uh, you get to clean up the city um, and kind of have a little bit of a break before you uh, dive back into this. And what makes it a roguelite is that you're, uh, at some point, will be overwhelmed um, and uh, all your like, heroes. I feel like that. the term roguelite has just, it's really lost most descriptive value. <laughs> This I will say, it does seem fun, so I'm going to also, I'm going to get Wargroove, and I'm going to try this game, and I'm going to see... Uh, Alright, we're book clubbing it now. Oh book yeah, clubbing. we are book clubbing it. <laughs> so, um, to move on to the topic that I was uh, hungering for today is open world concept games. Mm-hmm. And so, to start this topic, I'm just going to go through and define it, and also talk a little bit about its close cousins, the sandbox games, and resulting uh, what they call emergent gameplay that kind of rises out of the combination of the two. So, open world game is, is um, we can call it a concept, but uh, it's in a way it's a game mechanic where you've got your virtual world that the player can explore, approach different objectives freely, um, and it's really going away from linear and structured uh, gameplay. So a good example of you know linear and structured would be your old school Mario levels versus uh, Super Mario 64 might be one of the precursors uh, to what we would, um, or, or even a potential member of the open world gaming club. Uh, I would say it's that. a precursor. Um, more so than the main one because they still had the concept of the different kind levels of, yeah. and the overworld. Yeah, and I guess you could yeah. you could get it different would, stars. Yeah, Super Mario sixty four is a non-linear game. That's a good. Yeah. Okay. No. Well, now, how they define sandbox games, which uh, often overlap, is that um, so open world is referring to the lack of limits uh, in the player's exploration of the game world. You can go basically anywhere and perhaps uh, tackle the games. Uh, uh, major objectives in different orders. Sandbox games um, refer more to the ability of giving the player tools for creative freedom within the game to approach their objectives. Right. And uh, so, for example, one good example that I found online, uh, which helped me understand a little bit more about the difference, uh, was Microsoft Flight Simulator. They would consider that one an open world game where you can fly anywhere, but they don't consider it a, a sandbox <laughs> game because there's not necessarily creative as, uh, aspects into uh, achieving the oh, objectives. Oh, I hate genres. I hate genres so much. <laughs> Microsoft Flight Simulator is an open world game. You can fly anywhere in the world. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, and so, um, just to recap, they do consider it open world, but not uh, it's sandbox. A, it's a simulator game. Like, Come on. Yeah, simulator's kind of like, I don't know. That's a that's a weird one. It <laughs> is, uh, and actually, My, so Microsoft Flight like what Microsoft Flight Simulator? I feel like that's just a bad example for a genre. Genre, like you know, you want an open world game? Open world game? GTA. And we'll get to that uh, okay. in a moment when we talk about the genre defining games. The last one I thought to mention is emergent gameplay uh, or emergent games, um, and 
that one that I've been able to find a more concrete definition is a combination of open world and sandbox mechanics that lead to emergent gameplay with complex reactions that happen from the interaction between all the gameplay elements. Grand Theft Auto is a great one where you have your open world with a city where not only are the citizens interacting with you, the player, but sometimes they interact with each other. For example, when they have a car accident and then they get into a brawl out on the street and one of them might punch you in the face, you punch them back and now you're part of this uh, um, emergent interaction that's happening before your very eyes. Or when you're in a police chase and uh, um, you know, you're, you're crashing around and having all sorts of chaos happen around you and it's... Um, having feedback loops within the open world um, that aren't pre-programmed at all. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Dwarf Fortress now because I think it really illustrates this a lot. So we've talked about it before because it's one of my favorites. I've played way too much of it. It's a terror... It's it's a time sink. Don't don't do it if you value your (laughs) sanity or time. But with that out of the way, it's amazing and one of the reasons that Dwarf Fortress is so amazing is because it has some of the best emergent gameplay uh, ever uh, oh yeah we, we talked about the, the baby the baby mace <laughs> baby club story uh, a couple episodes ago so if you want to hear about a warrior uh, a warrior dwarf uh, wielding her baby as a weapon please go check out I think episode 2 of our uh, episode 1 episode 1 of our favorite all time games um but yeah, I'll, so I'll relay another story. So this one time in Dwarf Fortress, which is kind of both, it's this one time. it's more of it's more of a sandbox game, I would say, than open world per se, uh, because you don't really control a single character as as such. Um, yeah. Uh, though there is, yeah, yeah, it's more like oh. yeah, it's, it doesn't have the same. There's sure Dwarf Fortress is kind of about exploring, quote unquote, but it's not actually about exploring. <laughs> it's not about exploring. It's about um, carving. It's about carving your fortress into the mountain and yeah. depths of hell. Um, You're not seeing what there is to see. You know what there is to see. Rocks, rocks, more rocks, and elder deep fiends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking about monsters from the deep, so I had this one fortress where I embarked and it had a cave system. I thought this would be cool to embark into a cave system. Um, there were some giant spiders, of course, uh, and, and I, I, I saw those. I took precautions. I had a nice barricade, uh, and I had a nice barricade with grating. I built grating into my walls so that we could, I could have archers with crossbows who shot the giant spiders uh, from complete safety uh, because obviously this cave system had, had a lot of the deadly creatures, the giant spiders, fauna, giant spiders, <laughs> which were uh, merely but one. Um, and the fortress was going pretty well. Uh, had had a reasonable number of dwarves, maybe twenty dwarves, maybe like a year, year and a half in to the fort. Fort, um, and then the thing is, so there are legendary creatures in Dwarf Fortress that can appear, um, and there was this one legendary creature that arose from the depths of the caves and it was a pterosaur made of steam (laughs) now yeah yeah so obviously that's that's a that's a very interesting uh mythical legendary creature and it it came up out of the caves and went straight for my fortress and the thing is i thought i had a really smart defensive system here. I've got grating. 
right? I've got I've got grates. You know, oh, bars no. and grates that I can shoot through. No monster can go through those. Flying creature made of steam went right through it. It it just it it and it makes perfect sense. It's made of steam. It can move through grates. Like that's a very interesting interaction that I how, never would have expected. How do you kill a steam monster? I so did you? So right off the bat, this <laughs> this monster it starts just it it kills my entire military right off the bat because I had them stationed there because I didn't think it was going to be able to go through the uh, through my defenses so easily. Uh, so there, the military's all dead right away. That was maybe like you know four or five dwarves out of like you know twenty twenty five. It quickly got into uh, the mining operations, which were nearby. And also, I thought the miners, since they're a bit stronger, they have higher strength from all that mining, I thought they would be able to maybe help. Um, they fell rapidly next. Uh, at this point, most of the other dwarves, I've sent everyone to try and attack, the, to attack this thing because I know that it's either... It either it's it either I kill it or the fortress is over, and everyone tried to equip weapons, and pretty much everyone with a weapon died, uh, was taken out by the steam monster, uh, and at one point though, one of the one of the civilians was killed, and and it was very heartbreaking for uh, his best friend. <laughs> See the the dwarf fortress game also simulates relationships. And my soap maker was enraged. Now, in Dwarf Fortress, enragement is a state that confers a whole bunch of stat buffs, uh, but also makes the dwarf insane. What that means is that a, a, like a, like a, a dwarf that's gone berserk uh, will kill everything around it. Everything, including other dwarves. Um, but they're very strong, and they can take out things which would normally be far, far outside their ability uh, to fight. Oh, so wow. my so my soap maker, having seen his best friend be killed by a steam pterodactyl pterosaur, which, whatever that looks like, um, he, he was enraged and went berserk. And he goes to this thing, and he's covered in his friend's blood. And he punches, he punches it to death. <laughs> with his bare hands and Amazing. he's now covered in he's now covered in his friend's blood and he then takes some soap that he had made and uses it to rinse off his friend's blood in the puddle that was left behind as the corpse of the steam pterodactyl monster oh my God. <laughs> so I just love this story. Like, it's there's so many weird mechanics just interacting to give this like epic last stand against a mythical beast that has invaded my fortress. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've got this crazy interaction where, like, the steam modifier on the monster made it able to go through um, walls that were not solid but rather grates makes sense you know you've got uh the uh the the social mechanics conferring stat buff like during this last stand where 
most of my fortress was slaughtered. I think I had, but he, he was like one of the only, uh, he was one of only maybe six dwarves that actually survived this, this, uh, this brutal, this brutal onslaught. Uh, you know, you've got this weird combat, you've got the combat system, which is very strange, uh, but also, um, leads to interesting stuff happening. And then you've got, like, a water corpse from the steam monster, and then it, the soap maker uses the soap he made to clean off his friends... his friends that, that made him enraged, his friend's blood, in the monster's corpse, which makes sense because it's a... it's a puddle of water, which is the perfect corpse from steam. I just, it I love it. amazing mental imagery to like, capture that. It's just... It, it like I like to imagine it almost as if like everyone tried attacking this steam monster with weapons, and it didn't work. And the soap maker gets enraged and comes in. You fools! You need to you need to hit it with the soap. <laughs> the soap will wash yourself in the monster to kill it. Oh man! <laughs> you know, like to, to me, like that's what emergent gameplay is like. I think emergent gameplay should almost be called unintended gameplay. It is. <laughs> because it's just like, it's mechanics interacting in a way that... That the developers could not have foreseen. Or Well, sometimes the developers sometimes do foresee emergent gameplay that can arise in their game, but the player is not directed towards that gameplay. For example, in, in Grand Theft Auto, I, that's probably the game one of the games that I've done the most emergent gameplay with, where I just did a bunch of weird things just because I could. Like, let's try and get as many cars piled up in this one location as I possibly can. There's no... Nothing in the game tells you to do that. Nothing in the game rewards you for doing that. But it's something you can do, and I had fun doing it. And then you have just a pile of angry people trying to get through this mass of cars, and then they start swinging at each other, and, and then the cars start blowing up, and now the cops are here with the helicopter. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So going back to, now that we've taken a look at the difference between emergent games, uh, emergent gameplay, sandbox games, and the open world uh, game mechanic, uh, I'm going to talk about some of the genre-defining games. Now we've already talked about Grand Theft Auto, and Grand Theft Auto 3 is kind of looked at, uh, upon as one of the uh, more modern uh, genre-defining games that spawned a lot of, um, of the standards in what we see in open world uh, games today, um, and uh, but open world games actually go back to the 20th century as well. Um, now it even goes back as far as the 80s. In 1984, uh, was one of one of the games that people would argue would be the first open world game is called Elite. And right. that uh, is uh, a open world uh, space exploration game, uh, which has its distant relative today that we know as Elite Dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so this game was a, uh, you know, it would be running on the old school PCs of the 80s and would, um, would have wireframe graphics. Uh, and... Uh, um, the gameplay itself, you know, basically really truly is a precursor to, if you take a look at, you know, the gameplay of, of Elite Dangerous today, um, and the gameplay elements within that game, uh, it's basically like it's a, a distant, yeah, distant relative is what I would use the term for it. Have either of you played Elite or Elite Dangerous? No, um, but, I don't know, I, I kind of have it, I kind of have some issues with some of the definitions you're using. 
Uh, and that's just because gaming is, you know, so relatively new that a lot of the terms, I feel like, are still evolving. And when we talk about open world games today, and the context and what they mean today, like, those concepts don't necessarily apply to older games like that. Like, I would not have called Elite, the original one, or, you know, Elite Dangerous, the new one, I would not have called those open world games. I would have called those space sims. And because, because space, like, space sims, like, a lot of different games... See, have, have, it's can, the Microsoft Flight Simulator argument all over again. In space! Yeah, it's just like... Just because there's a vast uh, space that you can go in, I, I think today, I don't necessarily think that's what makes an open-world game. Uh, if, if, if I had to define an open-world game in modern context myself, um, I, I'd start by looking at just like the various different kinds, like... The Bethesda RPGs, the Ubisoft open world games, the uh, like the Grand Theft Autos, where you have yes a large area that you can do things in, but there's all these different pe- things peppered around this these areas that the, the developers intend for you to do. So like. I wouldn't so because those are just like intentionally placed for you to find. That's something that I think makes it an open world game. Weirdly enough, or like something like No Man's Sky, which was released, like that is the one one of the most open games ever made. And it has a lot of generated. It has a ton of different worlds, but I still wouldn't really say that's an open world game. All right, fair enough. Yeah, it's interesting how basically there's almost like a bit of a genre convention with what an open world game is that there's there's something lacking yeah. there, right? Like if you look at a Bethesda game or GTA or my personal favorite for innovative open worlding, uh, Spider-Man 2. <laughs> Ooh, uh, yeah. Like these, um, these are all games that have... Uh, a world that where where basically the whole world is open to you from the beginning, maybe not the entire map, but but like large chunks of it, and yet there is still a typically a story. There's still typically missions. Yeah, and, and like you can go at it at your leisure. I'll give you two of the games that uh, seem to definitely uh, fit into this category um, that are quite well known. One is the Fallout series, Fallout Three. Mm-hmm. And another is Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so both of those I would say um, are some of the more well-known of uh, today's open-world games. Yeah, probably Red, you... Red Dead Redemption is another popular yes. one. Yeah. Well, well, there's a ton of open-world games now. Like lots of games are incorporating open-world elements in the way that like shooters started adopting progression mechanics when Call of Duty came out. Yeah, it's almost yeah. it's almost kind of like the idea is almost becoming... It's almost not even relevant yeah. and, anymore. And, like, yeah. Or, it's becoming less relevant. And, and, like, the same thing with a lot of games in, like, the mid... Like, the early to mid, and even later, uh, like, 360 era, where, like, it felt, it felt like every game had multiplayer added to it. Even when it really didn't need it, like Bioshock Two had multiplayer. Really? Yes. 
See, I don't know that because actually, this and here's my controversial opinion, but it might not be controversial here, but I hate Bioshock. <laughs> I think Bioshock is a terrible game. That is controversial. A lot of people think that's one of the best games ever made. I, I, I've never played a Bioshock game. I've barely seen gameplay of a Bioshock game. I can't wait. I, it, but uh, maybe maybe this is something we, 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 we leave for a later day. We, we, we might have to. Send us your hate mail on why you love Bioshock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it's the thing. I, I wouldn't necessarily say, like... I might like maybe disagree a bit. I don't think necessarily that you're wrong though, because genres have always been poorly defined in any medium, and video games again being such a fairly new one, like a lot of people are just gonna have different interpretations of the genres. Like the genre is not fact. Yeah. At this point, yeah. genre is genre, <laughs> genre. <laughs> but uh, when, yeah, and so I think, I think maybe there's always like lots of other mediums where like genre crossover is a thing but in video games i think that that's even more apparent especially as there's games now that sort of do a grab bag of being almost every genre at the same time those poor programmers i feel like there's probably a final fantasy game that's like an open world turn-based real-time strategy rpg yeah final fantasy 15 <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh god we're so, of the open world games, what would you guys say is your number one game? So, that's tough, because I think Grand Theft Auto Vice City is very up there for me. I spent a lot of time playing that game. I had a yeah. ton of fun with that game. Um, uh, but, as time has gone on, I've really soured on the like modern formula of these types of games. Like, I... Did not I did not like Assassin's Creed when I when I tried playing it. I despise Fallout Three, uh, and Final Fantasy Fifteen. Like they tried to make that game open world, I really dislike that game too. And so a lot of these games, I just find, I just find the op open worldness of it to be a detriment more than a help. And one of the games that I think use open world to its advantage and made it a game that I think would have been bad if it hadn't uh, used these concepts is the original Crackdown. Oh, yeah. Crackdown is pro would probably be my number one pick for my favorite open world game because they did something that a lot of open world games I feel like do terribly. Crackdown has good movement options. Yeah. It, it's this, It's such a fundamental thing to me that if you're going to make a game with a very wide expanse that you can move through, make it so that moving through that isn't a slog. Like, I cannot stand games that get, that, like, get away with, like, the Bethesda RPGs, get away with having a big open world because you can quote-unquote fast travel. Going through multiple loading screens is not fast travel. It's slow travel. <laughs> yes, it's faster than walking the entire way, but like, it makes it so that those games are... For a game about exploration, I shouldn't be traveling between places through loading screens if it's supposed to be this open world game. That just, it's, it defeats the entire point. Yeah. But in Crackdown, you're, you know, on your, on your feet, you, were, you could jump super high... You can go around the world and climb a bunch of stuff in a way that Assassin's Creed's climbing always felt clunky because, you know, you can't jump 
the you can't jump four stories. Um, and the uh, the vehicles, especially the ones you got, but like the police vehicles were super fun to use because like they had fun physics to them to where you know the SUV had crazy air control the the low to the ground just like cop car could just like send other cars flying when you hit them i mean crackdown crackdown was a i think i think crackdown really just leaned into like making an open world game that's just fun yeah exactly it's just fun and like like they weren't worried about making it realistic they weren't worried about like really like much of anything honestly except mm-hmm. just being like just over the top like and just a little corny but like in a good way and just so much fun a little corny skills for kills agent skills for kills oh, and speaking, speaking of which like yeah. one of the brilliant design decisions that they made with that game besides packaging in the halo 3 beta with it uh was the agility <laughs> orbs those are such a great design decision because they're these invisible things in the world that you want to collect because they make you move faster, jump higher, move better, and make you level up so numbers go up and everybody loves that. But that encourages you to not drive everywhere. That encourages you to try to run around and interact with the environment to get to where you're going so you can pick up these orbs along the way. So, like, in that way... It made traversing the city feel way more necessary, whereas other games, I feel like just getting around anywhere again is a slog. Yeah, yeah. And on that note, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug my favorite open world, open world game again, Spider Man Two. Uh, some of the newer ones might be better. I don't know. I haven't played them, uh, but Spider Man Two rocked and totally in some of the same ways as crackdown it's so fun to just move around as the sit in, in the city right you're hitting the right trigger and the left trigger to shoot his webs and hit the buildings and it's just fun to move around that way it's kind of weird it's a strange it's fun to be spider it's a strange control <laughs> scheme but it, it it makes sense and uh it makes it fun to move around similar to crackdown it also had I mean, it might have even inspired Crackdown. Oh, it 100% inspired Crackdown. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine that game not being inspired by Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Um, yeah, it also had these these various uh, trinkets hidden around the city, uh, a lot of them in high places uh, where you have to collect them, and you can see them, and you're you're just swinging around, and then you, you see something, and you're like, oh, i got to go climb that building to, to get this trinket. <laughs> But it works, right? And then it makes you explore the city, and it, it makes it a lot of fun, uh, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, this has nothing to do with open world, but Mysterio is amazing in that game. Oh, one of the best boss fights. Best best boss fight. Um, the Mysterio <laughs> boss fight, real good. There's so many health bars. So many health bars. I was. <laughs> how, how how would you ever defeat such a foe? How could you defeat him? I don't know. Uh, also, the writing was really good. Mm-hmm. Like. Um, that's one thing they really any Spider-Man IP you really I think the best Spider-Man IP is always when the writing is on point with Spider-Man as just a sarcastic motherfucker (laughs) who does not give a single fuck about anyone around well maybe his friends but like not the enemies that's for sure and uh, yeah it's like oh shocker 
Nice to see you. You got reupholstered. <laughs> yeah, Sarky Man. And that's Sarky Man's the best. And that's uh, yeah, I love it. It's so good. So, I do want to go on a tan- tangent here, uh, as you mentioned, good writing into another open world game, uh, Near Automata. Now, I didn't even know that was an open world game. <laughs> well, it is. I haven't played it. So, this is, I a lot of people absolutely adore this game. I don't necessarily think it's that. It's like, like the in the upper echelon of games or anything like that, but it does two things well. One of which unintentionally, and one of which very intentionally. Unintentionally, it was somewhat of a budget title, so the areas are actually like a lot sm- smaller than most open what most open world games are. It's still open, and there's still like you know. If you're in this like city city block like multiple city blocks, you can like go around the you know high rises whichever way you want. It's still open, um, but the smaller scope of the areas again it made it just more easy to play, easy to get to where you want to go without it just taking forever. But the one thing that it does do extremely intentionally is that the writing is amazing. Like, a lot of the side quests in open-world games aren't nec- aren't super rewarding from a gameplay standpoint. They're rewarding based on the, like, actual rewards that make your your character better, or the writing that you get. And Nier Automata had amazing writing for the side quests that made me want to do them all, even though the rewards kind of didn't matter, and the gameplay was not... Partic- I didn't find particularly inspired in a lot of them. But... You had all these robots, like, contemplating their existence the entire time. That's basically <laughs> the entire point of the game. And so yeah. you're meeting all these, like, crazy robots that have, like, a bunch of different, like, takes on, like, philosophy and stuff. And the writing's super crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. I've not uh, played that one yet, but... Mm-hmm. Huh. Uh, so, you asked the question, Sean. Now it's time to for your answer. What's your favorite open-world game? Whew. I would say... It's going to be the Red Red Dead Redemption. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed the first one, especially. Uh, and the second one, as well. Um, oh, I didn't but, even know you played uh, Red, Red Dead, you played Red Dead Redemption 2? Uh, I've only... I actually have not completed the second one. Uh, I don't own well, a yeah, copy of it. But, but you played it. Yes. Okay. So, it's, inter- it's interesting that you use those terms, because... Did you know that Red Dead Redemption is a sequel? Red, well, I don't necessarily know if it's a sequel, but uh, Red Dead Revolver is a I, game that exists. Oh my gosh! Um, that came up before Red Dead Redemption that Rockstar made, and so it was. So yeah, a lot a lot of people forget that that's actually a game that exists. Uh, but yeah, Red Dead Redemption. Uh, that's that's a pretty good pick. Yeah, for me, it it really was the immersion in the gameplay world, and I started to, I mean, for me, uh, Western movies and uh, and kind of the Western genre has has always been pretty entertaining for me, without me going into, you know, uh, in, into, to say that's my number one genre of movie or video game, but... Uh, what I found was that just following the the plot itself um, was rewarding in its own way, but also just exploring the activities uh, that you could actually just do, um, you know, whether it's uh, hunting for, for pelts and whatnot and kind of getting into that groove, 
or um, doing the bounty hunting. <laughs> you're, either, you're either hunting animals or scoundrels. <laughs> or uh, perhaps being on the run after some shenanigans, um, you know, and having these mini-adventures between the main quests where uh, it was just taking a moment to assess. Now, what was interesting to me in that game is that I found it blurring the lines between me imagining the character to be an extension of myself versus me playing the character as I imagined that John Marston might be. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I found myself often sinking into that role of who is John Marston and who am I playing him as, uh, which definitely led to some of the most enjoyable um, experiences and decisions that I'd be making. All right, you, you guys heard it here. Uh, Red Dead Redemption uh, induces schizophrenia, 10 out of 10. <laughs> and 11 out of 10 at the same time. And perhaps 9 out of 10. Oh, I hated it. <laughs> you quiet, you. <laughs> yeah. So My prospect, I really likes it. That's not prospect, <laughs> that's like Southern Georgian. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, some of the other things that I, I thought to bring to the table is uh, the precursors of uh, the twenty of the twentieth century, uh, things that led to the open world genre. I'm I'm curious whether you would actually rate these as being open world strictly, or whether you might tell us that uh, it it kind of dips outside of that. So before Grand Theft Auto Three, <laughs> there was games like Ocarina of Time. Right. Uh, Ocarina of Time was open world for its time. Uh, it, it, I think, like, especially, like, thinking back, I think it really blew a lot of people away in its time as, look at this amazing space that, that you can just traverse. And you can actually kind of go, um... Uh, outside of the intended order, but you can't actually do anything if you go too far. That that's why I I think it's not like it's not really. It's it's more like a really. It's just, it's, it's an action adventure game like many Zelda games, but I don't th I don't think it has enough of the open world concepts to really go for it. Like there's there's actually not. May I misremember because yeah, like, you played you played it more recently than I have. I mean, honestly, how how much like extra side stuff is there to do in that game? I don't remember there's being a lot. I mean, there are definitely there's some. like little uh, there's like a few side activities, but in terms of like you know a, a what's considered like a traditional side quest, perhaps. I mean, there's like some weird there's this weird side quest where you like sell masks to people as as young as young Link, right? Um, only only. Only the first of which is actually necessary to uh, progress in the game. And then there's additional ones. And most of the actual side quests in the game are... I mean, there's a couple... You could I mean, you could consider them side quests for, like, uh, bottles and stuff. And there's... Uh, I feel like there's, there's at least a couple proper side quests. But not... Not a ton. Yeah. Like the original open, the original Legend of Zelda is the most open world Zelda until Breath of the Wild. The original, because you can go the original Zelda. The Zelda I'm gonna be honest. To. I I I did not like the original. Zelda. I like I, I a lot of. The I like Zelda. a lot of NES games. I did not like the first Zelda. Fair game, fair game. I don't like a lot of NES games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, 
Okay, like, so... honestly, like, GTA 2 is more of a Zelda... Uh, more of a... <laughs> GTA 2, more Zelda than Ocarina of Time. You heard it here first. Um, now, GTA 2 is more of an open world game than, than Zelda, mm-hmm. Ocarina of Time. Like. Now, contrast that to Super Mario 64. Would you say that it's more or less open world than Ocarina of Time? More. Okay. Are we just gonna stack rank every uh, every game as like more or less? Stack rankings are great. I'm 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 totally into this. I'd say more because yeah, again, it's the non-linearity really clinches it. You can tackle things in an dip in a order that you just can't in something like Ocarina of Time. And if you dive into the analysis yeah. of speed running, you can really do anything. You can tackle yeah, it in Ocarina, any order. Ocarina of Time is actually like weird. Uh, like it, it's very particular. You know, there's always, like, one exact next... Outside of dungeons, there's always one exact next move you have yeah. to do. And a, a fair amount of locations are closed off to you until certain parts of uh, yeah, the Yeah, until so, you unlock certain uh, items, like traversal items. Yeah, so there's... there's Yeah, so be, because Ocarina of Time uh, is, like... To me, Ocarina uh, of open world games, like, if you had to boil Oca- down to three okay. things... So, like, Ocarina of Time is a linear game in a somewhat open-ish world. Whereas Super Mario 64 is, like, a, 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 a somewhat more... It's, like, self-contained areas that can be played non-linearly. And then also you can play the different areas in different orders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like open worldness to me comes down to non-linearity, like, exploration, and like side quests. Those are, I think, like three three big pillars of what makes an open world game to me. Now, one game that feels open world on the surface, but seems to me to be a little bit more sandbox. At least, this could just be my opinion, but Dishonored. Um. Dishonored. I have zero opinions. I haven't played it at all. Yeah, I don't know enough about it to say one way or the other. I think that... I think people do... Well, people consider that almost a stealth game, right? So, Dishonored is definitely a stealth, uh, um, in a way, open world game. Now, what kind of pushes it away from complete open world is the sense that um, there really are levels that you have to play in order, but the manner in which you play those levels is completely open in the approach that you use to achieve your yeah. objectives. Yeah, like, I think that that can make it be considered an open-world game. Like, a lot of games that people do consider open-world games now, like, are, do have linear paths to them. Yeah. But, but, again, like, the the options to approach those, I think, can make something. Like, nobody's going to argue that Assassin's Creed is not an open-world game. That's just right. how it is by definition yeah. now, basically. But you still have to, you know, kill this person, then kill that person, then kill that person, right? Yeah. So. Now, the one thing I'll say about... Well, actually, two things I'll say about Dishonored. Um, one was that the movement through the game uh, right. was just so high-velocity, high-impact, mm-hmm. and fun. Yeah, blinking um, everywhere? Yeah, when you're blinking everywhere, and uh, so the, you know... You could pretty much always get the drop on on an enemy, and in fact, you could be surrounded by enemies and be blinking in and out amongst them, um, and just be using the chaos of being pretty much everywhere at once 
um, to be able to survive an encounter, uh, you know, and and change the balance of what might be a lethal encounter for you to lethal to everybody else. And uh, two is if you want to see the epitome of how far you can take that, go on YouTube and look up some of the uh, some of the. Uh, amazing gameplay that there is online of people who are really good at that game. And I mean, for example, there will be uh, people who fall out of the sky in a Rube Goldberg-like sequence where they'll go ahead and chop someone's head off, throw it in the air, have it uh, bounce off of something in order to deflect a grenade that they threw seconds before from a different position, which will knock it into a group of enemies, blowing then up, uh, one of which who will notice the protagonist, shoot at you, and then you'll do a body swap with them so that their own bullet blows their own head off. <laughs> and that's in the first five seconds of gameplay. Wow. It's pretty fantastic. You watch those and you go, yep, I think, you know, <laughs> imagining a game world in where this is real, I could see how the protagonist would be considered one of the most feared and mythical figures of all time. Right. Totally. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Dishonored. And uh, it's more open-world-ish, at least to me, cons uh, cousin, um, Assassin's Creed. Yeah. Now, I've only played one of the Assassin's Creed games, um, but uh, diving into Hail Bays from... <laughs> uh, or, um, did I say that right? Hay Bales? Hay Bales. You said Hail Bays. Oh, bales. wow. <laughs> <laughs> Protection from the elements. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hail Bays is what you do when you're uh, worshipping the uh, statistical theorem. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important, otherwise the stats don't come out right. Oh, wow. you got to say three Hail Bays, otherwise your paper is rejected. <laughs> yes. So good. Uh uh, I'm curious, which Assassin's Creed game, which Assassin's Creed game have you played? Uh, the second one, actually. Right. Okay. I've played the first one. Because mm -hmm. uh -huh. I, if if I recall, the first one, the structure is actually a bit different from everything else's, right? Yeah, I think the the first one's actually not really that open world. Yeah, but um, like kind of. Aren't you doing different things to get information that, like, changes how the assassinations play out? I believe that's the case, yeah. Like, I thought that... I, I've only played a bit of 2 before hating the movement so much I stopped playing it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but my impression of the Assassin's Creed games was that the first Assassin's Creed was, like... It was these big build-ups to these, like, assassinations, whereas the other games were... Ha had actually, a weirdly, a less of a focus on the big assassinate... assassinating these big targets. Yeah, I haven't played the other ones, so I can't really compare too much. It's funny, it's, so, uh, it's a uh, massive game series, but I just... I don't, well, I, really I mean, the, these days it has nothing to do with assassination, but... I mean, the, the latest one is basically just a Viking, a Viking game. <laughs> and they com pretty much completely abandoned all the, like, real-world story that's been going on. Really? Like the Desmond stuff, yeah. Uh, was, uh... That, that stuff apparently barely pops up anymore. That seemed like... 
Except for kind of Assassin's Creed Black Flag had a really hilarious setup because the real world stuff for, for that was you were working for Abstergo Entertainment, a game developing company. And so you were going into the Animus to do like practical research for the game that they were going to make or something weird like that. Wow. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think that's how the premise went. I think in... Which could have been a hilarious meta-commentary on Ubisoft's game design philosophy for their big games. Because, like, holy shit. I think in at least one of their games, they have historical mode, where you play it and all of a sudden it turns into less of a... Uh, you're trying to assassinate people mode and more of a learn about the history of the time period you're in mode. Right, yeah. <laughs> Assassin's Creed 2 you can play in, in Italian. And my my cousin from Norway really likes the Assassin's Creed franchise. And when they came over to visit once, they were playing the game and my dad was watching and my dad's Italian. So... And the game takes place in Italy, like Florence, I believe. And so they're they're playing the game in Italian, <laughs> which was which is pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, Assassin's Creed Origins had Discovery Tour mode, which is actually its own standalone uh, uh, version of the game, in addition to being a game mode. And uh, you would walk through and follow the golden path. Uh, without any interruption from quests or enemies, and so long as you followed the golden path, you would receive a audio commentary about the world around you, like a tour guide. So cool. Yeah, that's uh, that'll. I think I'll cut it off there in terms of wrapping through around and within the open world games concept. Yeah, like. I think the next open world game I'm likely to play is Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, uh, I ended up buying it on sale because Sony actually discounts their games, unlike certain other Japanese companies. Uh, and they actually, um, I don't know if this promotion is still going, but they've been giving away games because um, of COVID. And they gave away Horizon Zero Dawn and its expansion on uh, PS4. So that might actually be, still be going on, but I'm not sure about that. Their play-at-home campaign or whatever. Um, and that might be a, like a make-or-break game for me, whether I play like modern open-world games, because so far, a lot of the ones I've picked up and tried, I've just bounced off them completely. But this one, you know, has... It's a new, new IP in a pretty interesting setting from a studio that... Uh, it's um, Gorilla, I believe, and they previously made the Killzone games. So this is kind of their first game like this as well. So I'm hoping that it does enough, like, interesting new things. And also, like, a lot of people really like the game, so... I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to play that at some point in the future, and hopefully... Hopefully it takes. Yeah. Yeah. guess we'll find out next time not next time (laughs) (laughs) in the near future next time at the angry sun pat 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 zone pat cost pat cost (laughs) definitely not next time i'm pretty sure i could we could have an entire episode that's just my backlog 
where I describe the games on my backlog oh, and why I, and why I pick them. Let up. me just let <laughs> me just in the let me just open my let me just open my Steam. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the difference is is that you've bought probably bought way more humble bundles and other types of bundles than I have. That, I very rarely buy humble bundles. That's true. I've I've bought a lot, and usually I buy the humble bundle for like one or two games. And there's other ones that I'm like, oh, this might be interesting. Sometimes I'll buy it specifically for something that I don't end up playing. I bought the Alan Wake games years ago. <laughs> years. I still never played any of them. That was a smart move for a period of a few years when they were off sale. <laughs> I think they're back now. Wait, they they weren't on sale? Or, or they uh, weren't for yeah. sale? Dude, licensing's weird. Like, Marvel vs. Capcom 3 was taken off sale. For a while, the whole point of the whole point of Alan Wake was that they lost the rights to. So wait, you're telling me Alan Wake, which was just a Max Payne game without Max Payne because they lost the rights, had rights problems. Yes. <laughs> Did they perhaps hold a, a a wake for for their lost comrade, for their lost IP? They went all in. <laughs> with, the, with, with rights issues that was terrible oh yeah okay. you know they actually so speaking of Horizon Zero Dawn which I believe has dinosaurs in it robot dinosaurs uh, I was I was at Dankmart and at Dankmart I bought some Haribo dinosaurs okay hold on pass me this over here I need to describe what I'm seeing right now because there's a like tealish uh, T-Rex looking motherfucker right next to a bear in a cowboy hat with a leopard print strap on it and a <laughs> and a bow around its neck. What um, incarnation? That's not a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> I need to see this for myself. Oh my god. Banana They're... and strawberry. Mango Meridina. Oh, that's the... Her Black I'm pretty sure that's the uh, Haribo um, mascot. <laughs> mascot. Yeah, like, yeah. that's what I assumed, but that's not a dinosaur. What do you mean? He's, 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 he's this crazy bear's friends with the dinosaur. That's a totally normal thing for a bear look at, look at to the way befriend that a dinosaur. Look at the way the dino's looking at that bear. I'm pretty sure that dino's going to eat that bear. Bear's Who's hungrier, the bear or the dino? Dino looks hungrier. Yeah. Bear doesn't even have teeth. <laughs> Come on, look at this, like, look at you got, like, you got Stegosaurus, Triceratops, T-Rex, and Armored Brontosaurus. Oh, yeah. Armored Brontosaurus? I mean, it's, I think it's supposed to be a Brontosaurus gummy, but it looks armored for some reason. <laughs> And now we come to the ASMR section. Oh no, please stop. <laughs> oh, the waveform looks so awful. <laughs> Awfully interesting. Let's see, is it sugar-free? Of course not. Haribo. No. <laughs> Haribo is legendary for their sugar-free delights, of which I'm pretty sure you can still find the reviews on Amazon yeah, if you I, want I, to have I, a I, I had Okay, so it was the Haribo like sugar-free gummy bears yes. that caused problems for people? Yes. Yes, it was. Digestive problems. The, yeah, well, these, Digestive problems of a legendary These are kind. not the ones with Maltitol. It's all good. Uh. 
<laughs> Seriously though, if you if you want to die laughing, go look up the uh, the Amazon reviews of of Haribo uh, sugar free uh, uh, gummy bears, and then look up the air, the Amazon reviews for stoned wheat thin crackers, and then look up the advertisement for Power Thirst, the energy drink you need in your life. Holy shit. Uh, you're bringing up some prime 2007 internet right here. <laughs> yes. This is this is your uh, internet archaeology podcast today. Dear Lord. All right, well, look, should we wrap up this crazy podcast? We <laughs> we're devol- we're devolving into, in, in, into, into, into madness here. Madness? Don't bring back 2006 internet. <laughs> this is Angry Sun Zone! Signing off. Just air horns now. It's the the angry air horn zone. (laughs) It's the goddamn. Oh, what? (laughs) Remix! I love playing this over Bluetooth while my girl sleeps. Almost as fun as the real thing, but my air horn got taken away after two uses. This air horn gets five stars because my real one got taken away. What a review.